0: And hello again, all. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me can connect as we and what that means for all of us. As always, I am your host, JDK Winnekin. You can find out more about me by checking out my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com. You can also check out my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N. You should find me rather easily you can also now uh, reach me via email at wordsbyjdk@gmail.com. at gmail.com so feel free to reach out directly too if you would like and uh before we uh before i jump into today's topic i'm going to continue uh talking about what's going on in ukraine today because i ran out of time last week uh rather abruptly as a matter of fact but before i do that i want to make sure that i give um, a lot of appreciation and kudos to this show's sponsor airway science for kids Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit uh, that is based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do that by not only doing in-house programs that can introduce um, underserved youth to the hundreds of career options available in aviation and aerospace, but they also take what I guess you could call a holistic approach uh, to helping a student develop self-advocacy, develop their own interests, their own talents, and to develop the skills they need to improve their own lives, to connect uh, more deeply with their families and with their communities. And if you would like to know more about the amazing work that they do at Airway Science for Kids, you can check out their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out to them via email by using the address info at airsci.org. So thanks to them for their continued support. Uh, Welcome, everyone, to Episode 61 of this show for March 7th. 2022, and this is the 12th day of uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And last week, uh, I gave, answered some questions, hopefully, for some of you. And I did get some good feedback and some thank yous from people for kind of giving some historical background in a very general sense uh, to what is going on in that part of the world, a part of the world that a lot of people in the United States, a lot of people in the West uh, don't know as much about as maybe they do other things, uh, you know, and in some cases may not know much at all. But I committed a cardinal sin last week and I, I started telling the story of a specific person, Oksana, and I, the cardinal sin was not finishing the story. And so uh, that's where today's title of the show comes uh, comes from. What happened to Oksana? <laughs> that, was, that was the number one question I got after last episode. Um, and the haiku that goes with that for today goes like this. In each life we hear about, we can see something true about us all. In each life we hear about, we can see something true about us all. And I think that's the case um, in talking about Oksana. So because we ran out of time last week and because I didn't finish her story, that's where I'd like to sort of pick up today and tell you a little bit more about her and why I think my experience with Oksana uh, and her story can tell us a lot, maybe as a, as a, a general framework for what's, what's happening. And then as soon as I'm done with that, I'll circle back to some of the comments that uh, I finished with talking about Vladimir Putin and where we go from here. Um, The quick reminder is Oksana is a woman who uh, today would be 81 years old. I do not know uh, where she is or if she's if she is still alive, but uh, she was born in Ukraine, uh, lived her whole life there and uh, orphaned during the Second World War, adopted by a family that then took her to the eastern part of the country uh, near Kharkov, where she grew up. She married a, uh, in the 60s, married a uh, young communist official uh, in the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, had three kids, and uh, her oldest son died in the invasion of Afghanistan. Her daughter uh, committed suicide, sadly, uh, several years later, and she had one surviving son um, named Bodan, who was born in 1971, and... uh And of course, when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, which Vladimir Putin called the greatest geopolitical calamity of the 20th century, uh, when that happened, Oksana was jubilant that perhaps a better life was on on the way for her and for her surviving son, Bodan. And it, of course, has been kind of rough going for Ukraine. It has politically been dominated by upheaval ever since 1991, even before the invasion Particularly in its politics, uh, vacillating very strongly between kind of pro-Russian governments and maybe more, for lack of a better term, pro-West, pro-EU governments, and it caused a lot of turmoil. And of course, Vladimir Putin, since he's been in power for well all but nine years of uh, Ukrainian independence, has made no secret that he believes Ukraine has always been part of Russia and belongs as part of Russia, and so. With all of that, uh, Oksana's hopes of a really bright future had to be tempered somewhat. Now, I met her in 2003 because I met her because I met Bodon, And Bodon I met sitting in a beer hall in Munich in 2003 when I was working on my dissertation research. And I happened to be in the city at the time. And the great thing about doing research in Munich is at the end of the day or on the weekend, you can go find a beer hall with really good beer, really good food. And really good company if you choose to talk with people. And that's what I did. And I met Bodan. And Bodan at the time was uh, working in Munich uh, doing liaison work for a Ukrainian company with BMW. And, of course, BMW, a major headquarters, is in Munich. And we started talking, just sitting there, uh, you know, just sitting at one of those big community tables like they have in those beer halls at the Hofbrauhaus. And we started talking and he found out that I was a historian, that I was there doing research and that one of my specialty areas was modern Russia. He started telling me his mom's story, all the things that I've just just mentioned to you today and last week. And he said, you must meet her. And I said, well, I'd love to. And it turns out she was living with him. Uh, He brought her over to Germany to live with him since he was on a longer assignment. And so um, the following that was on a weekend, the following weekend, I met up with him and his mother, uh, Oksana, at the English Garden in munich if you've ever been there it's the huge almost like central park of munich and met her there and we sat out on this bench and she she didn't speak any english and so her her son translated everything for me and i brought a notepad with me and i wanted to hear the story i had no idea what i would use those notes for eventually and me telling you the story is the first time i've used them (laughs) for for something so now i know the purpose is to tell the story but uh so almost 20 years later uh here it comes now, so she told me this whole story that I've been relating to you these last couple of weeks. And she admitted that, um, you know, her father was, was shot by the Germans during World War II. And so it was strange for her at first, she said, to be living in Germany uh, because of that. And, of course, she'd grown up under staunch anti-German, anti-Western propaganda for most of her life in the Soviet Union. And so it was quite an adjustment for her. But uh, one thing, you know, one thing that she said was, after a little while, it became easier because clearly, as she put it, quote, Germany has become a vastly different place than it was. And that actually gave her hope that, um, you know, the big historical baggage of the Ukraine could be overcome in ways that she thought Germany had overcome its past or was working to overcome its past and be better. When I asked her uh, if she thought the same thing could happen in Russia, you know, following the fall of the Soviet Union, she was dubious and she was dubious um primarily because, as she said at the time, because of who was in charge. And that was Putin. And Putin had only been in power for three years. And he had not yet run over the independent press. He had not yet begun the process of uh, murdering dissidents and political opponents, both inside inside Russia and outside of it. And she was pretty dubious. And she said something that really jumps out at me when I review the notes. She said, quote, Putin wants the power of Stalin with more private jets and movie stars to meet. And that's sort of pretty good, considering, considering his connection to, you know, multi-billionaire oligarchs. And he does like to hobnob with the rich and famous. It's an interesting. It's quite the insight uh, from her. And she was uh, early 60s at the time. She expressed, uh, talking to me, that she hoped Ukraine would move further away from Russia in terms of its reliance upon them, particularly economically, and that she thought it might be better for Ukraine to be part of the EU. But then she said this. Quote, well, there is no way that Putin will allow that to happen. He believes Ukrainian is a Ru- Ukraine is a Russian birthright. That also has proven to be true with Putin's own words. Uh, and she also said that if Ukraine goes towards the West, Putin will fear Russians will want the same. Many already do, which is why he's starting to shut down everything. <laughs> so Oksana kind of had him nailed 20 years ago, right? Um, and what was interesting, though, in talking with her more... She, I asked her if she considered herself anti-Russian, being Ukrainian. She said, no. She said, I grew up near, you know, in Kharkov after my adoption, and there's plenty of Russians there. It's close to the Russian border. She said, so no, it's not about um, having trouble with Russians. It's about having trouble with the people who lead them, seemingly, in Ukraine's history. That's the problem. And she, she thought Russians deserved better uh, than Putin. And she did say, though, that at some point, she said, if Putin thought he could take Ukraine and other areas of the former Soviet Union into Russia by force, if he thought he could get away with it, he would. That was in 2003. So, you know, I'll sit back for a minute and just say with you, wow. It's quite something. And, uh, you know, and I, that story helps kind of connect things together. Many of us, many of you perhaps, are only starting to get sort of crash courses in Russian history or who Vladimir Putin is just in the last month or so, or maybe just in the last few weeks or so. And there's nothing wrong with that. What is important is moving forward is what what are the lessons that we can learn from this, right? Oksana knew these things as a matter of course. And I have no idea where she is today. If she's alive, she'd be 81 years old and Bodon would be 50. I stayed in touch with Bodon for a couple of years and it just, that's how life goes. People drift. And so I don't know where he is. Um, Social media searches haven't yielded anything for me to find either one of them. And I have been looking for them. I like to think that they're both safe and outside Ukraine. I like to think that um, if you know, she or he hasn't passed on, if they are in Ukraine, um, I'm just choosing to envision her as one of those women that we've seen in these viral videos who are confronting Russian soldiers and telling them exactly what they think <laughs> of what's going on. I like to think that's that's what she's doing if she is there. Uh, Bodan, most likely, if he's there, is likely fighting. Uh, and that's a, that's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought all the way around. And while it can be very tempting to take one or two lives, like I just have, and try and expand that into a larger lesson about a whole country at large, that's not what I'm trying to do here. What, the reason why I think it's effective is sometimes getting those little snapshots can ground us in the humanity of what is happening. It's easy with the massive amount of news and it's all on this macro level, right, with big players and big economic numbers and big explosions and big, big questions, it can be really easy to lose track of that human connection to this, that even though we are all lamenting the loss of life and the destabilization and the displacement, every one of these lives is individual, and our connection point is, maybe, could be, what would it be like if something like that was happening to me, But really, what this can do is ground it in the fact that these are people and places that are steeped in their own history, steeped in their own challenges, steeped in their own questions. And a lot of them have known that this trouble, at least in this part of the world, was brewing for a while. So with that in mind, as a way to maybe make the massiveness of this a bit more digestible, let's kind of, you know, Well, Oksana and Bodan sitting on that park bench with me in Munich. Let's sit there for a minute and then let's kind of bring Vladimir Putin into this. As I mentioned last week, uh, he's in a hole of his own making at this point. And I said last week that historically, at least, despots, dictators tend to act when they do things like this or acting in ways where they're trying to avoid something happening or a series of things happening that they're fearful of. But by doing so, they tend to bring about the very things that they don't want. No. And I I said last week, you know, there was concern he doesn't you know, Putin doesn't want Ukraine to unite and be anti-Russian and drift towards the West. Well, this invasion has not only turned them against Russia fully in a lot of ways, but has increased their desire writ large to join the Western orbit, to move towards the EU, maybe towards NATO at some point. Maybe we don't know. Putin also didn't want NATO to rediscover its own internal cohesion, which had really dipped in the last five years or so. Well, they've rediscovered it. Uh, It's pretty remarkable. I can't remember the last time that Europe from the English Channel, or even on the other side of the English Channel, all the way to the Russian border was pretty unified. I'm not sure it's ever happened. (laughs) And at least right now, there's the will for the Europeans to do something. And they're spending a lot of political capital, economic capital, and military weapons to help the Ukrainians in this fight. That is something that Putin has never wanted to see. And it's the very act of what he's done that's making that happen. He's been concerned about being economically squeezed by the outside world. Well, that squeeze is happening. The ruble continues to plummet. It's not at the post-Soviet levels yet, but it's about halfway there as of this morning. Uh, and so that's having direct consequences, not just on Putin and all the rich oligarchs around him, but on everyday Russian people as well. And that's a story worth keeping in mind here, too. Right. There are plenty of uh And very understandably, for very understandable reasons, a lot of of empathy and support and solidarity being expressed for the Ukrainian people, a lot of thoughts and prayers from people for the Ukrainian people. We should also be recognizing that there are millions of Russians who don't want this either. uh, And it is affecting them uh, directly. And in fact, when it comes to the personal effects, um, you know, Putin may suffer politically from economic sanctions and maybe to a certain degree personally. But that's not going to have the dent on his daily life, at least not yet, that the economic sanctions will have on the daily lives of Russians. Uh, and these are people that have gone up and down economically for ever since the end of the Soviet Union. And there's a whole generation of Russians who are now entering the workforce, graduating from university, who are trying to get into the Russian workforce to make money and build their lives, who have no memory of the Soviet Union whatsoever, who are really going to struggle here. And it is not in the best term, best long-term interest of Russia for their best and brightest to leave that country, a so-called brain drain, to go find jobs somewhere else. None of this is good uh, for Russia in that sense. And so Putin, despite all of his, what he's trying to do here, has started to produce the very things that he's been fearful of. And it's easy to say that's a narcissism thing, <laughs> and it certainly does fit in the case of Vladimir Putin. But beyond that, there's a larger lesson that this is kind of a human thing. If we are driven by fear and by a persecution complex, by an ideology that defines yourself as what you aren't and who is different from you than anybody else, this is the kind of stuff that can happen on a small level or on a macro level. It may not be possible anymore for Putin to see this, okay? but here's the important thing I want to get across with this, to put side by side with the story of Oksana and Bodan Um a lot of people are saying he's acting irrationally. A lot of people are saying these are rational acts that he's making. Some people are saying he's losing his mental acuity. Uh, I don't think it's any of those things. I think we're, we're looking at the wrong, uh, the wrong set of criteria if we're looking at that. Putin, for a lot of us, Putin is operating from precepts that we fundamentally don't understand, particularly Westerners, because it's not necessarily a Western mindset. And central to this is what Putin himself has said is his guiding star, if you will, and that's something that in russian is called Ruskimir, mir or the russian world. Okay? And it has a lot of different permutations and it's easy to just call it strong russian nationalism and it certainly is nationalistic. But this idea of the Ruskimir mir is a long-standing system of interconnected beliefs that are at the core of Putin's brand of russian nationalism and it goes all the way back it's it's he- steeped heavily in nostalgia for the historic supposed historic greatness of Russia going all the way back to the imperial era from the mid-1800s, mid-18th century on. This idea of Russia being an empire. One of the things that historians will say is that Russia became an empire before it ever became a state. Meaning it had multiple different peoples within the Russian empire. And it's this belief in its inherentness, that it's almost its divine nature, this Russian empire, that Putin says Ukraine is inherently Russian because it was part of the Russian empire. And from that point of view, Russian Mi- Mir, it still should be. This Rusky Mir idea also has deep roots in the Russian Orthodox Church, with its claims of course being, of being the true Christian Church, and of course most Christian churches claim that they're the true one, but this is particularly strong in Russia, and so there's this sense of deep spiritual connection in this, and historically in Russia there's a lot of, of political overlap between the Russian Orthodox Church and politics. That is just something that has existed for a long time, very different from context that a lot of us are used to in the West. And so it has almost a spiritual element and a religious element to it as well. And the idea is that Russia is inherently unique in the world, unlike any other place or any other system or any other sensibility. Under this idea, Russia is not Eastern. It is not Western, nor is it a blend of the two in any way. It's its own entity. At the center of this, which is what Putin really embraces, is that the argument goes that history shows that the West and the East have always been out to fundamentally and permanently weaken Russia. And people like Putin and others who embrace this idea call upon a number of historical examples where that indeed has happened, where the West or the East has worked to undermine Russia or has interpreted other historical events as proof of that. Right. So. Oftentimes, in some of these myths that get put out as actual history, there's some half-truths in them, right? Western powers and Japan intervened in the Bolshevik Revolution, for example, in 1917. Not effectively, but it gave a whole lot of propaganda power to the Bolsheviks as they, and Lenin as they consolidated their power. So these types of things taken together gives this ruski idea this element of protection as a necessity, And so because of that, in some threads of Russian nationalism, particularly the more extreme ones, xenophobia is very common. And it's not just because other people are different races or anything like that, but because Western or Eastern influences, but particularly Western, could corrupt this national spirit. It's a deep fear. Now, this is not unique to Putin. And you don't have to be an authoritarian to believe this if you are Russian. And one of the best examples I can give you of this is somebody who's about as different from Vladimir Putin as possible. And that is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, of course, the Nobel a Nobel uh, Nobel Prize winner for literature. Excuse me, um, whose novels *Cancer Ward* *The First Circle* are considered among the greatest uh, literary uh, novels from Russia of all time. He's most famous as being expelled from the uh, from the Soviet Union in the early 70s. For collecting and distributing both inside the Soviet Union and outside firsthand accounts of the Soviet prison system, the Gulag, the political prisons, where Stalin, Lenin, uh, and others to lesser degrees imprisoned political opponents uh, essentially slave labor. And this was a very, very large network throughout the Soviet Union. And this collection came to be known to history as the Gulag Archipelago. It's one of the biggest, you know, one of the best selling uh, collections of firsthand accounts of any historical event in history. He was exiled in the early 70s for this by the Soviets. And in exile, he, even before he was in exile, he'd been lionized in the West for his anti-Soviet sentiment. But many assumed that that meant, because he was anti-Soviet, that he was pro-Western. He was not. He settled first uh, in West Germany and then eventually came to the U.S. And uh, he was given a hero's welcome and allowed to settle into a pretty nice place. And he was invited to give the graduation speech at Harvard, in 1978 and he gave a speech that was not what people expected Shocked the hell out of everyone so much so in the fact that if you listen to the speech itself you can hear people booing booing alexander solzhenitsyn by the end of it he hated communism that was very clear because of what he said he what he called it's repression of the soul it's repression of the spiritual and what it meant to be truly and uniquely russian so that's why he fought against it. But he pretty much said Western values were exactly the same. They repressed the soul, they repressed the spiritual, and they threatened what it meant to be truly and uniquely Russian. And namely, he pointed out what he saw as Western decadence as a threat to Russian identity, both on a personal level and a national identity. He called the West spiritually sick, suffering from things like excessive freedom and overemphasis on individuality secularism right now he believed that men had forgotten god that's what he continually kept to say that's how the soviet union happened that's why the west was not an answer this type of thing now you could have found a lot of russian orthodox clerics who would say the same thing you could find a lot of russian nationalists of varying stripes no matter what they thought of the soviet union who might say the same thing because they were speaking as a russian as a proud russian and solzhenitsyn made no secret of his pride in being Russian. And so you could find a lot of Russians even today who might be against what Putin is doing in Ukraine who would say the exact same thing about Western ideas and about Soviet ideas. You do not have to be like Putin to be Russian and be proud of your country. You also can be proud of your country in Russia and be against the invasion of Ukraine. It's not so simple as to say all Ukrainians think one thing, all Russians think another just because Putin's doing what he's doing. And so with that, my important point here is that I think it's easy to be, it was easy to be caught off guard by Solzhenitsyn's comments in the U.S. Mainly because at the time in the 1970s, we were talking about a couple of generations of anti-Soviet propaganda being first and foremost what people in the United States and Western Europe knew about the Soviet Union. This idea of a different way of looking at both, almost a pox on both your houses, as Solzhenitsyn may have put it, Uh, that this somehow was not in the cards was just a product of the Cold War in that sense. But it underscores a chronic problem in the West. And this is where I want to figure, uh, where I want to leave things off. There is a fundamental lack of understanding of Russia's history, of the history of the peoples around them, of the former Russian Empire, and its people oftentimes beyond the caricatures that we get from them, uh, from movies and the like, and there's plenty of them. And that assuredly has some role to play here. Now, the degree to which is that is debatable, and that certainly does not mean we're all at fault for what's happening here. However, it does say something about where we all go from here. Right? In the end, right? Putin is going to do what Putin is going to do. Because here's the thing that I think is important to remember. No matter what happens here, chances are, unless Putin is removed by his own people, some way, shape, or form, No matter what happens in Ukraine, he will see it as validation of some element of his version of Ruskimir. He'll either see it as a way of justifying his vision of either the Ukrainian people, who he's called Nazis, or of the West's inherent hostility. So, for example, the West's unity in the face of the invasion with sanctions and sending in weapons, he likely sees as proof that he was right about their desire to undermine and permanently weaken Russia. That will reinforce that belief no matter what happens. That might reinforce his commitment to subdue Ukraine by any means necessary. It'll also stiffen the resolve of any Russian and Slavic nationalists who are giving him support. But that being said, he would find a way to justify it the other way. So if the West was doing the opposite, it was disunited and backed off and let him do what he wanted to do, Putin would likely see this too, from the Ruskimir point of view, as proof that he's in the right to invade Ukraine and quote-unquote save it. From the weakness and decadence of the West, it would likely embolden him regarding all the other old territories of the USSR and the Russian Empire, like the Baltic states and the various stands of south and southwest areas of the country for the same treatment. You see the issue here. Either way, Putin will see things as reinforcing his decisions as correct and necessary and urgent. So it will take other things, most likely internal pressure, to get him to move away from totally crushing Ukraine. Dictators don't tend to see the light, even when the light is shining in them in the face. Take a look at the last moments of Saddam Hussein, Omar Gaddafi, right? His domestic position is his number one priority. And so it's going to fall to people within his own orbit, within his own country, to determine his fate, which is probably as it should be. So, with that, thank you for joining me for this episode of This Show is All About You. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnekin. Check out my website on Wednesday. I'm going to add a little bit more about this topic as well as some resources for you to look at under my weekly blog link at wordsbyjdk.com. And until next week, everyone, I'll say what I always say. Chins up. Counseling. Counseling.com.